I have to say it's really good to be back. We were gone for, it seemed like a week. It seems like we've been going for the last two weeks. We've had our, the guests from, we say Wakanda, that's, that's Marvel, it's Uganda. <laughs> had the guests from Uganda come out and, and uh, they actually left the same day that we left for California for Matthew's graduation, who's downstairs, but I guess he's still with the high school because he's still June. So anyway, um, praise God, he's graduated, and I'm just like, oh, thank you, thank you, Jesus. And, and uh, then, uh, so we had a trip out to California. Uh, I think Kevin for covering for me last Wednesday and teaching. I heard it was just a great evening. Worship was great. And then, uh, Bruce, thank you for Sunday morning as well. It was Heard that was awesome as well. And it's, it's funny because when you, we weren't able to go to church Sunday morning out in California, and uh, and you you miss it. I mean, I miss the, the worship. You're not being able to worship. It's like, man, you know, your heart really does cry out. I need to worship the Lord. And and uh, certainly, you know, we're in His Word, but but just to be in a corporate place where we worship, we had a, a, an opportunity uh, to uh, see Brad Hornbeck. For those of you who remember Brad. We had some dinner with Brad Hornbeck, and, and that was cool. But also um, had an opportunity to share. We had kind of a family reunion on Sunday with all of my wife's side of the family there and had an opportunity to share with one of her uncles, a guy that's uh, been in and out of jail lots of times and just a, a druggie. And he's the youngest of the four brothers of my wife's uh, dad and, and uh, um, probably looks the oldest because of the drug abuse. But I had the opportunity to share with him for a good 20, 30 minutes while we were there, just about the love of Christ and turning his life to the Lord and, and all that. And so, uh, you know, he, he didn't he didn't receive the Lord right then, but but I you know gave him a lot to think about. His name is uh, Gerald. We call him Butch. Uh, this is his nickname. But if you think about praying for him, he's uh, he's up there in age and not in good health. And I just said, you know, to live a whole life, you know, miserable, not walking with God and, and, and have it horrible in and out of prison and then to die and go to hell. You don't want that. You want to give your life to the Lord. And so I had a chance to share with him, and that was that was exciting for me. Also, the um, Harvest Crusade, Harvest America, the numbers were in for uh, this last Harvest Crusade. 2,354 professions of faith were made at the stadium itself, which is absolutely awesome. Um, uh, 921 online responses to the gospel, and then 5,967 host locations. That means all the different churches and everything. They had a total of, of 10,286,000 professions of faith. Now, I mean, that's, yeah, let's praise the Lord for that. I mean, it's awesome. Um, even if only a portion really continue to walk with the Lord, man, that is still great, absolutely great. And so we need to be praying for these folks that, that they, uh, they continue to walk with the Lord and, and that God blesses them as they do. So. Well, we're continuing our, our study through the book of Judges. We are in Judges chapter 6 this morning. Or this morning. It feels like morning. This evening. Um, you can back up to chapter 5 a little bit. We'll kind of go over that just a little bit before we get to chapter 6. If you need a Bible, that's where Greg is at. I'm looking to see where Greg's at. He's been standing over here the whole time. If you need a Bible, Greg, who's been standing over here for a long time, would love to bring your Bible in so you can follow along with us. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather this evening, Lord, to open up your word and to know, God,
God, that you are faithful to speak to our hearts. Every time that we gather together, every time we open your word, you are faithful to speak to our hearts. doesn't matter really who's up here teaching, Lord, as long as it's your word that's going forth, you speak through it and you touch us. And we thank you for that, for the work you're going to do tonight in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, again for uh, this past week. And, and I do pray for uh, my wife's uncle, Butch. I pray that he would give his life to you, Lord. We pray for uh, all those that have committed their, their lives to you through the crusade. Lord, that there would be follow-up, that these, these were not just uh, uh, would fall on rocky soil, but on fertile soil, Lord, and they would continue to grow in their walks with you. And we thank you, Lord, for the study of your word as we get into the book of Judges. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us not only information but application in our lives as we draw closer to you we commit this time to you in jesus name we pray amen well if you remember last time together we looked at judge debbie you've heard of judge judy this is judge debbie and and uh, she had heard from the lord that he was giving them victory over king jabin the king of the canaanites and we looked at how barak wouldn't leave the israelites in the battle without deborah but also how deborah was not afraid to go with him because she knew that the lord had promised them victory she had that faith. She was assured the Lord was promised him victory, and so she went forward in that, and, and there was victory. And we looked at how in chapter 5, uh, it was recorded for us the victory song, you know, and how the Lord brought about such a great victory. And I shared how, although Barak and Deborah were perhaps not as gifted in the area of singing as they were in the area of battle, we read that they did sing in verse 3 of chapter 5, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, I even, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praises to the Lord God of Israel. Even I will sing, she says. This tells us that you don't have to have a great voice to claim that verse, okay? You know, maybe you know you have a horrible voice, but even I'm going to sing praises to the Lord. Well, in verses 4 and 5, we read of them singing praise to God for the way in which he displayed his glory in Israel's history. Verses 6 to 11, they, they sang of the way Israel was before God intervened through Deborah. Verses 12 through 18, we read of the response from God's people to the battle cry that came from Deborah and Barak. Verses 19 through 23, they, they sang of the description of God's victory. And finally, in verses 24 through 31, was a song of celebration over the death of the man who had opposed and, and crushed the people of God. Now, I don't know what the tune was that went with it. Uh, but I tell you this, you think some modern lyrics are graphic here. Look at verse 26. Uh, of the woman that was responsible for killing General Sisera, the wicked general of the Canaanites, uh, they sing, she stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer, she pounded Sisera, she pierced his head, she split and struck to his temple, at her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still, at her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, where there he fell, dead. I think the Grateful Dead could have sung that song. I, I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's pretty, <laughs> it's like one of their lyrics, but... But we looked at last time how Sisera was a picture of our flesh, our old life before Christ, and how we need to put to death that old nature that's in us and walk in that newness of life as, as Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 6. Now the song does end on a good note. Get it? A good note? Uh, look at verse 31 of chapter 5. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love Him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. I like that. Let those who, who love the Lord be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. What is the sun like? Man, it's bright. It's powerful. It's strong. 
What is the sun, S-O-N, like? Bright, strong, and powerful. I like that. If you love the Lord, be like the, the sun and stand strong in Him. Draw your strength from our, our Lord. And really, that's the theme that we're going to see as we get into chapter 6. And we read at the end of verse 5, in, uh, chapter 5, verse 31, it says, So the land had rest for 40 years. Oh, that's great. For 40 years. They're the rest, or they're walking with the Lord. Then we come to chapter 6, verse 1. And it's back to the same old practices. Look at verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. So, once again, they're back into that cycle. Remember, it's rebellion. Israel sins. Then retribution. Israel's forced to serve her enemies. Then comes repentance as, as Israel turns to God for deliverance and then restoration. Israel is restored once again. We've seen the story all the way up through these, these last five chapters. And, and this time, because of Israel's rebellion, the Lord uses the Midianites, an arrogant, brutal, nomadic uh, type people. You may recall that Midian was also a son of Abraham, but not from Sarah. After Sarah died, Abraham married a woman named Keturah, and, and with whom he had six sons. One of them was a boy named Midian. Now, the Midianites, they were idolaters. They were slave traders, some of whom sold Joseph into, into slavery in Egypt. They also had been in partnership with the Moabites to get Balaam to curse Israel. We know that the book of Numbers, the Lord commanded Israel to attack them. Numbers 25, 16 through 18 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you. And they did attack them. They obeyed the Lord, but they didn't wipe them out completely. So by this time, they have now grown into the sizable force to be reckoned with. Once again, that is a problem if we don't set out to destroy the works of the flesh in our lives. It's only going to come back stronger and harder the second time around to attack you all over again. Then what you need more, more than ever is, is to put your trust in the Lord and draw your strength from the Son, you know, the S-O-N. Now verse 2, because the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, we read that the, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, the strongholds which are in the mountains. In other words, they're hiding out in the caves. Why? Verse 3. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and to destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So every time the Israelites were, were, would try to plant their crops, the Midianites would band together with the Amalekites, another one of Israel's enemies, swoop down upon them like locusts. Because of the size of this army, they would then wipe out the fields along with their livestock. And the Midianites were bringing such devastation to them that the result of that was obviously fear and famine. So they're, they're forced to live in these caves out of fear. You know, if you ever do a study just on caves in the Bible, you'll see that they're not a place to find comfort and peace in. In fact, you see that they're a place of fear, sin, and death. Remember in Genesis chapter 19, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was afraid to, to stay in Zoar and stayed in a cave with his two daughters. And that turned out to be one of the most terrible sinful stories in the Scriptures. 
Then there's the story of the five kings with their armies and attacked Gibeon in Joshua 10. Joshua came to the rescue. The five kings, remember, they hid in the cave, but Joshua had them brought out and put to death. First Samuel 24, David fell into sin while he was in the cave. Remember, it just so happened that, that, that King Saul chose to use the same cave to, to, to go to the bathroom in, and while he was in the cave, David stuck up behind him and cut off a, a you know, a edge of Saul's robe. This was a direct attack against the king's God-given authority, and David quickly repented. First Kings 19, when Elijah became fearful of Jezebel, Jezebel, he hid himself in a cave. And then we also know Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the earth, they're going to be hiding in the caves in the wrath of the Lamb instead of repenting. So caves are not a good place to find comfort and peace. Caves are also used for burial sites as well. Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Lazarus, all were buried in caves. Now here's my point. Sadly, there are far too many Christians hiding out in caves today in the sense of making sure they, they never come into contact with the outside world. Oh, it's too fearful out there. I just We need to hang out. Let's all just gather in this cave and, and let's just all band together and stay together in this cave where we're going to be safe. But Jesus' words were to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not to hide out in caves. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Neither are we to live in the fear of men. See, when you figuratively find yourself hiding in a cave, you're in a bad place. The place to seek refuge, shelter, and protection is from the Lord. While the Israelites, they finally figure this out. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Look at verse 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So after years of bondage, years of, of being afraid of these guys, trying to work it out for themselves, you know, well, let's try the cave, let's do this, let's do that. They finally said, that our refuge are futile, futile so let's, I'm just going to cry out to the Lord. You know, I don't know what struggle you may be struggling with tonight or what you may be in bondage to through the oppression of, of your flesh, but I would say if you are, quit wasting your time trying to work it out for yourself in the energy of your flesh. Just cry out to God. But, but there's just something in our nature that makes us so stubborn. And I don't know why we, we want to try and always work out our own issues and our own strength. And oftentimes, like the children of Israel, it takes years before we realize we can't do it on our own. We need the Lord. And it's not till that point when we really become broken before the Lord that we cry out to God. Now, the good news is Psalm 34, verse 6 tells us when we cry out to the Lord, He hearkens to our cry and answers our prayers. See, when we get to that place of brokenness in our lives and desperation, God always responds. Look at verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And there's a difference between a cry of help from trouble and a cry of repentance from sin. Israel called on God, but they had not dealt with their, their, their sin. And you can cry out all you want, but if there's no repentance, it doesn't do you any good. Sooner or later, you need to come to that place of repentance. So God sends them a prophet with this message. I'm the one who gave you victory over the Egyptians and the Amalekites and the Canaanites. 
Why are you afraid of the gods of the Midianites when it's me that you should be afraid of? See, God knew that they weren't afraid of him because they had not obeyed him. Because when someone fears the Lord and you have that fear of the Lord, then you're going to stay away from sin. You're going to obey him. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16.6, By the fear of the Lord one keeps away from evil. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 and 5, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can do. But I will show you to whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. See, Israel, they weren't fearing God. Rather, they were heading head, you know, headlong into in evil practices. So the Lord sends them this prophet challenging them to repent to explain to them the reason why they were where they were at, why they were suffering the, from, from this, uh, the, the problems they were having, is all because they, they turned away from the true God and they're following these false gods. But they're still not listening until we see the Lord himself shows up in verse 11. It says, Then the angel of the Lord comes. Now remember, this is the same angel that we saw in chapter 2 we discovered was Jesus Christ himself. The phrase, the angel of the Lord here in the Old Testament is a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abersrite, while his son Gideon threshed the wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I love this. I mean, here is Gideon hiding from the Midianites, knees knocking, shaking in his boots, yet the Lord calls him a mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I mean, how do I know he's in fear? From where he's threshing the wheat. In the wine press, not on the threshing floor. Wine presses were the lowest part of the land in order so that they wouldn't have to carry heavy loads of grapes uphill. On the other hand, the threshing floors were on the highest ground in order to catch the wind. See, the winnower would take the stalk of wheat in the air with a winnowing fork and the wind would blow away the shaft while the grains would fall back to the ground. So here is Gideon down at the wine press trying to thresh this wheat, no wind, doing it so that the Midianites would see what he's doing and come and steal it. I mean, it's a, it's a sad but funny picture as the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. He had to be somewhat embarrassed by that title. Perhaps he thought it was sarcasm. Great, the Lord is even making fun of me. You know, that would be great. But it wasn't sarcasm. See, Gideon represents a perfect New Testament truth. Second Corinthians 12.9, the Lord said to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, the Lord isn't saying to Gideon, Gideon, you are mighty, therefore I am with you. No, it says that the Lord is with them, therefore he is mighty. You see, when we look at each other, even ourselves, we see all of our wrinkles and flaws and imperfections, but God sees us as the finished product. He sees how He will work in us to His glory. And we see this played out over and over again throughout Scripture. God comes to a 99-year-old man named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to change your name. From now on, you're going to be called Abraham because I'm going to make you the father of a, of a multitude. And God often finds people who have no real qualifying factors or, or personal points of, of favor for the Lord to work with so that He non-mistakably will get all the glory. 
See, it's God alone who makes these people just the opposite so many times of what their natural character would be. I mean, think about a man whose epistle we just finished studying on Sunday morning. And an impulsive, unstable, emotional man is brought by his brother to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called a rock, Peter. And that's exactly what he became, a pillar of the early church. Well, the same thing is happening here with Gideon. The Lord is saying, Gideon, I know who you are. I know your circumstances and all the rest, but I'm not really concerned with who you are now because I'm going to do an awesome work in your life and in you. And in reality, you are a mighty man of valor. Not because someone will wait, something you have weighed down deep inside of you. It's because I am with you. So verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. I mean, Gideon doesn't even recognize that this is the Lord himself who's speaking to him and begins to complain about God and, and how God has abandoned the nation. I mean, he's having a bad case of memory loss. Yeah, he remembers all the stories about God miraculously delivered them, but he's choosing to forget all the warnings that God gave to them as well. He's forgetting Numbers chapter 33, verse 55 and 56, that says, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Well, I kind of forgot that verse. Now you're forgetting that one. Listen, God would have been justified in responding to getting the abandoned you missed, and you've seen nothing yet. But instead he doesn't. He gives them a message of deliverance. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So the Lord here commissions Gideon to go out and take the victory against Midian. And Gideon's response, you know, all I can think of is the old Bugs Bunny cartoon. And, and remember the one with the vulture? And the mama vulture's trying to kick the, the vulture out to go get you know, the Bugs Bunny. And, and the vulture, nope, 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 not going to do it. Not going to, nope, 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 nope. And here, here is Gideon. Nope, nope, nope. My, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's help. Nope, 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 nope. You know, and, and it's going on here. Listen, there may be times when you begin to get this hint that God wants you to do something. And for some of us, our immediate reaction is that we couldn't possibly do that thing because we aren't anything special. Oh, Lord, I could never. Lord, Lord, not me. This is very much the same response God got from Moses when he called him in Exodus 4.1. He said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Exodus 4.10, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the times past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Nope, 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 can't do it, Lord. Jeremiah, the same thing. Jeremiah 1.6, Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Nope, nope. Listen, it may not be a bad thing that you may at times feel inadequate. It actually may be to your advantage. To someone who feels inadequate will tend to run to the Lord. And depend upon his strength and his help much more than the person who feels that they can handle anything. Mighty Gideon was from the smallest tribe, the least within his family. And on top of that, he was a younger brother. 
Lord says, perfect. You're just the guy I need to do the job without boasting in yourself. Again, time and time again in the scriptures, we see God cutting away at man's self-confidence in order to bring him to the place where he'll admit that he's totally inadequate for the job that God's calling him to do. I would venture to say that there's not one major person we see in Scripture that God didn't bring to him a deep sense of his own inadequacy before he used him. That's because it's not about who we are. It's about who he is. And he tells Gideon, Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianite as one man. You know, Gideon, he's a classic illustration of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. It says this, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's God's plan. Not that we should glory in our own, you know, works that we do, that God should get all the glory. So verse 17, Gideon replies, that he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. See, by now Gideon knew that there was something special about the person he's talking to. Wasn't exactly sure who he was, but he knew that he spoke for God. But what he would come to realize is that it was God himself whom he was speaking to. So Gideon asked for a sign. Show me a sign that it is you who talked with me. Now I know there's some people that they find fault with Gideon for simply not trusting in the Lord and going and doing what God says. But keep in mind that God doesn't rebuke Gideon for asking for a sign. He said God will accommodate Gideon's request for a sign. And I believe very much that God speaks today and that He wants to direct our lives. But I've also seen over the years, how a person can, can want something so badly that they become misguided and conclude that God has spoken to them and they find themselves in a mess because God didn't really say to them to go out and buy this car or get into this relationship. And so, oh, you know, God, you know, God said this, so I'm going to go do this. God said, you know, maybe take some time. Seek the Lord. Seek for Him to, to, to really show you. You know, nothing wrong with asking for a sign. Verse 18, Gideon asked, do not depart from me, I pray, until I come to you and bring my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an epaph of flour. The meat he put into a basket and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. As we read verse 19, keep in mind there's a famine going on at that time. And Gideon is preparing a feast. He cooked an entire goat, plus he used about 35 pounds of flour to bake bread, and he made some soup as well. I mean, this was no, hey, I'm going to run to McDonald's and bring you back something to eat. No. He's taking the best from the substance and giving it to the Lord. David said, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Why? Because if it costs something, it means nothing. Gideon is offering up a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. Talking to, a, to Kenny from a, a Uganda Last week, he says, no, if you come and visit me in Uganda, we're going to give you, you a, a chicken and a goat when you get there. I thought, awesome. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with the chicken and the goat, but, but, but thank you. But, you know, it's just his heart. The, the, the heart was just to, to give uh, over what God has blessed them with. Well, look at verse 20. 
Then the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it is still an Oprah of the Abizrites. When Gideon followed the Lord's instruction, suddenly this meal was turned into a sacrifice. The Lord simply touched the rock with the staff and a fire devoured the food. Because God often reveals himself, uh, his presence in that way, Gideon immediately knew that he had been in the presence of the Lord. And because of that, he freaked out. He thought he was going to die. Because the Bible says that no man can see God and live. And so he's terrified that now it's time for him to die. But he wasn't looking into the Father's glory, but to the Son. And we know that God didn't come to condemn Gideon, but to deliver his people through him. In the same way, when Jesus Christ appeared to a man named Nicodemus, he told him this in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so here the Lord is saying to Gideon in verse 23, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You're not going to die. I'm ministering to you, Gideon. I'm showing you how much I love you. I'm taking this sacrifice that you're given to me, and I'm showing you that, 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 that I am who I am. Now verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So here we read that Gideon's told by the Lord to destroy his father's altar to Baal and build an altar to the true and living God. So he's learning to trust the Lord and he obeys, but does it by night because he still has that, that, that fear of men. But what we need to understand here first is that revival starts in you, in me personally. And then it spreads. In the same way, after revelation comes consecration. After the Lord revealed himself to Gideon, he, say, hey, he said, hey, there's a problem in your family. There's a problem that I see it needs to be attended to. But the revelation came first. So many times people think, well, I can't go to church today. Things aren't right. I really blew it. Listen, before the consecration, we need the revelation. But see, that is the attack that Satan wants you to fall for. He wants you to believe the lie when he tells you, you're going to Bible study? What a hypocrite. You're not consecrated. You're unworthy of the revelation. But that's like saying when you're sick, don't go to the doctor until you're well. Or when you're hungry, you don't, don't come to the table until you're all full. We come into the presence of God for revelation, which inspires both motivation and then consecration. I shared this already. How I, I shared with uh, uh, my wife's uh, uncle 
again this past weekend. And his words were, oh, you know, I, I can't come to Christ now. I, it would be like a, I'd be a hypocrite. <laughs> really? A hypocrite? Yeah, I mean, God died for hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. I mean, you know, and he's saying, well, I, I got to get my life right. I got to do what is right before I can come to Christ. You, you can't. You can't clean up your life first. Come to Christ and he cleans up your life. It's not hypocritical. It's what Jesus does best. But you see, it wasn't until Gideon had spent time with the Lord that the Lord then reveals to Gideon, hey, there's a problem in your family. There's an altar that needs to be torn down. And Gideon obeyed. You know, I think of the thousands that came to Christ this past weekend, you know, at the Harvest Crusades. And they're coming home. And maybe there's altars in their lives that they need to tear down. The Lord is just saying, now it's time to get rid of the stuff that's in your life. We need to, again, be praying for these folks. Now listen, when you start to tear down pagan altars in your family, you can't expect, expect applause from our enemy. Look at verse 28. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. I like that. Gideon's dad says, hey, if Baal is really any sort of god of any substance, why are you doing his bidding? In other words, if he's a god, let him kill my son if he's able to. You see, when Gideon's dad, Joash, saw the boldness of his son, something stirred within his, his heart. He who had once worshipped the false god Baal, uh, or rather he was one who worshipped the only true God of Israel until he was sucked into worshipping Baal. But now, through the actions of his son, it inspired him once again and he realized the stupidity of serving a God who couldn't defend itself. What an important lesson of our witness for Christ and through the actions that we take and the stands that we make. So verse 32, Therefore on that day he called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. So from that day on, they begin calling Gideon Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend or let Baal plead against him. Now the name you know, was supposed to be a curse, but it turned out to be a blessing. And it's used another dozen times in Scripture to refer to Gideon, and it becomes an honor to him. A reminder to all that he had torn down and, and the altar of Baal, and Baal could do nothing makes me think of the name that we're given, Christian. The word appears only three times in the Bible. Each time it's a derogatory insult. Acts 11.26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And Acts 26.28, and Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And First Peter 4.16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in the name let him glorify God. A name that began an insult, began as an insult, but since the second century, the church has used it as a title of honor. All that to say we will see the author of the book of Judges often refer to Gideon as Jerubbaal. So, verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Malachites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abyssalites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him, he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So Gideon said to God, 
If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and if it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, uh, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Lest, let me test and pray just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on, on the fleece, but on the, the, the ground let there be a dew. And God did this, did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was a dew on all the ground. Do you get the idea that, that Gideon's going, okay, I really want to know. Okay, okay, let me do a sacrifice. Okay, well, how about the fleece? And, how about, and, and now he sees, you know, hey, the, 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 the enemies are forming. Okay, Lord, I really need to know. I, I, I mean, I really, this is getting, you know, it's time to, to get into action and do what you said. I really need to know. And this is where we get the term setting out a fleece. Gideon used his fleece, a woolly sheepskin, and set it outside and asked God to affect the fleece oppositely with the evening dew that he that affected the ground. But notice, God honored this request both times. Now this brings us a question, uh, should we as Christians be setting out fleeces before the Lord? Listen, if the Lord wants us to answer that question tonight, then suddenly this pulp will start shaking. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a fleece. Three things we need to understand when it comes to fleeces. Number one, I would say a fleece is only doable if the Word of God has already spoken to you. I mean, if you say, okay, Lord, when I hand the teller this note, if she puts money in the bag, I give her, uh, I, I know that you want me to rob the bank, but if she pushes the buzzer, I know you don't. Okay, obviously, it doesn't line up with the Word of God, and, and God wouldn't approve that. But look at what Gideon was setting the fleece out for. He was willing and obedient to serve the Lord by entering into a fatally dangerous situation. But he wanted to make sure that he had heard the Lord right. So I would say, if you're in the habit of setting out a fleece, what exactly are you trying to find out from God? Is it, Lord, should I buy this house? Is it, Lord, are you directing me to be a missionary in Syria? I mean, there's a big difference. I think the latter is more likely in line with what Gideon was doing here. Secondly, Gideon's fleece was miraculous both times. A true fleece is not, Lord, if this is your will, then, then let this penny, you know, I flip, be tails. If it's not your will, then let it be heads. Okay, Lord, two out of three. <laughs> no. It'd be more like, Lord, if this is your will, then let the penny land on its head spinning, then miraculously turn into a gold cougar ant. I mean, see, if you're setting out fleeces, you're, you're, are you making them miraculous? The number three, understand that this was not a practice of believers in either the Old or the New Testament. As a matter of fact, this is the only story in Scripture that even uses the word fleece. If you want a regular and reliable way to find the Lord's will for you, I suggest two things. Read the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit. God's will is made clear for us through His Word. He's given us His Holy Spirit to guide us. Romans eight twenty six and 27 tells us, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So rather than setting a fleece on the ground, set your knees to the ground. Set our knees to the ground and pray. And the Spirit who dwells inside us will guide us. Proverbs 3 
5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct our path. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time tonight, Lord. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this opportunity to see, Lord, You move in a powerful way. And Lord, we see Your love that You have for giving. Even though He places this fleece before You, Lord, You're so long-suffering with Him that You answer Him over and over again. Lord, confirming his, your will to Him. And we thank You, Lord, that as we seek You, Lord, and if we seek Your will, Lord, that You will confirm it over and over again in our lives. That You are faithful, Lord. Lord, we know that it's Your will for us to be in Your Word. We know that it's, in your, it's Your will for us to be led by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that it's Your will for us to walk uprightly to love mercy, to do justly. Lord, we thank you for uh, just your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time tonight. Lord, I pray your blessing as we go our way, Lord. Bless our fellowship time afterwards. Lord, bless the remainder of our week. Help us to be that example, Lord, to, to those around us. Not hiding out in caves, Lord, but speaking the truth in love. That those that listen, that those that hear, will turn from their sin and turn to you. Help us to walk in holiness and godliness by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.